Well, as a church family, we want to prioritize the Bible. And one of the ways we do that is by just reading a portion of Scripture every service and then teaching through that portion. So return with me to the first chapter of John, John chapter 1. And what we're going to do is just pick up where we left off last week as we're beginning a study through this gospel. Last week, if you were with us, we looked at the first 18 verses of John 1, and it was there where we learned that Jesus is eternal, that he is the creator, that he is the light, and that he is the savior. We were introduced in verse 6 of John 1 to John the Baptist, where it says here that he was a man. And verse 7, that he came as a witness to bear witness. In fact, we see that word witness in verse 8 and verse 15 as well. And so this morning, what we're going to do is look at this messenger, John the Baptist himself, and what is it that he proclaimed? What was his message? So let's look at John chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Father, please now take your word and and help us to understand it. Help us to, to experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit as we understand it. And then may you grant us the grace to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
It was April of 1775, and word had gotten to a silversmith that the the British army was going to attack soon. Now, this silversmith was well-connected. He loved to fish. He had his own buddies for that. He had hunting buddies as well. Uh, He played cards, and he loved to go to the theater, and he was a frequent attender at the local pubs. And so everyone knew Paul. And so when he gathered this information and discerned that it was credible, he made a circuit in which he would inform all the people that were well-connected in the communities around him that the British were coming. And because of these connections, Mr. Revere got the warning out. And as a result, when the battle did come, the colonies, the colonial army was prepared for the attack and was victorious. Before that, there was another sentence that was as famous. And it came maybe not from someone that was well-connected like Paul Revere, but at least one that had influence, and his name was John the Baptist. Paul Revere might be known for saying, the British are coming. John the Baptist is known for this one sentence, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What I'd like us to do this morning as we look at this passage is a real simple framework is one, to look at the messenger, and then secondly, let's look at that message that he proclaimed. First, the messenger. In order to understand who John the Baptist is, I think a careful reading of the first chapter of the Gospel Luke would be in order. It's here where we learn of his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are very old and way past child-rearing years. Zechariah is a priest. And in God's favor, one day, he is given the opportunity to offer the incense in the temple. And while in the temple, he is visited by an angel. And the angel informs him that his old wife... Uh, Elizabeth will bear a child, and that this child will have some distinctions. He is to be named John. He will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. The angel makes good on that promise. Zechariah's wife is pregnant. And when that child is born, John the Baptist, Zechariah gets to prophesy over that child in Luke 1, where he says, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So we see in chapter 1 of verse 6 that John the Baptist is a man, but he has a calling on his life to prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus said of John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 11, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. This is what Jesus said of John the Baptist and what he thought of him. But what did John the Baptist think about himself? I think as we read these verses, we're going to see humility and meekness ooze from them. In fact, I've summarized a few things that John the Baptist might have said 
as we look at these verses. The first is this. I'm a nobody. Look again at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now, it would have been perfectly appropriate for some leaders who are in charge of the theology, the doctrine that was being preached at that time, to send a delegation to find out, Who are you, John the Baptist? And that's what they did. Well, they began to ask some questions. Verse 20, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Uh, the word Christ here is the one that means Messiah or the anointed one. The Jews of this time knew that there would be one that would come and would be a deliverer. Many of them thought it would be a political or a military deliverer. And, and so John the Baptist says, let me get that right out right away. I am not the Christ. Well, then in verse 21, they ask him, well, what then are you Elijah? Many at this time believed that Elijah would come back. You remember from the Old Testament that Elijah didn't die, but he went up on a chariot and he met God. And what we read of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, is that he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather. And we could read about John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1, verse 6, that he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. It also says that he ate locusts and wild honey. No, I've never ate locusts, but I've had sauerkraut. (laughs) And I think I'd take locusts over sauerkraut. You could see why they might confuse them. Elijah, Harry, leather belt, John the Baptist, camel hair, leather belt. But it is not Elijah. So he says, no, I'm not Elijah. I am not. And that is true in one sense. But in another sense, he was like Elijah. The last two verses of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 There is this prophecy that says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There would be one that would prepare the way. And that is John the Baptist. And that's what Jesus said of him in Matthew 11, verse 14, that he he is Elijah. John the Baptist is Elijah. There's another question posed of him here in verse 21, and that is, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. In, In Moses' times, he prophesied of a prophet in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And John the Baptist says, I'm a nobody. I'm certainly not the Christ. I'm not Elijah, and I'm not the prophet. Not only am I a nobody, but I don't have anything to say. But the word, look what it says here in verse 22. Well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Now, at this point, it would have been an A wonderful opportunity for John the Baptist to say, Oh, you haven't heard my story? Oh, let me fill you in on this wonderful story of how I came to being. 
You haven't heard of my, my father, Zachariah? You, you haven't heard of my, my, my mother and, and how she, kind of like Abraham and Sarah, was advanced in age, and yet God miraculously made my, my mom pregnant? You, you haven't heard that story of this, this prophecy over me and how I would be the forerunner? He doesn't say any of that at all. When they ask him, who are you? This is what he says in verse 23. I am the voice. I'm the voice of one crying. It's, it's not that he even has a message. He's just a voice. Jesus was the word. John the Baptist was the voice. In the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, the emphasis is on Jesus being the word. John the Baptist is saying, you know, I don't really have anything to say, but all I say is Jesus. I just say what, I'm, what, what Jesus has given me to say. He is the forerunner. In one commentary, they said that this would have been very common. They would have understood this. That whenever there would be a king that was making a tour to another place, there would have to be a forerunner that would go before them and make preparations. They would make sure that there would be adequate transportation. They would lay out the route and and make sure that they would arrive safely. Just imagine for a moment that the President of the United States would come and, and visit the mayor of Green Bay. Well, you would need someone to make those plans. Make sure that there is proper security on Air Force One to get here and land. And once it's arrived, you would have to have proper security to get the, the president from the Austin Straubel Airport from right there out to his destination. A, a plan would have to be routed. On, on the end here in the office of the mayor, people would be vetted to see who can meet with them. They would determine what will they eat, what will the agenda be. And this was John the Baptist's responsibility. He would be the one that would help prepare the way for the Christ. I am nothing. I have nothing to say but, but the word. And, and the third thing he may have said, he said, I am of the lowest rank. Look, continue on here, it says, in verse 25, they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, when someone would come into a house and they were your guest, you would have your servants take care of them, but your lowliest of all the servants had the responsibility of removing the sandals or the shoes of your guests. And John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy of the lowliest servant to remove the sandals from Jesus. They're asking him, then why are you baptizing? Did you know that baptism took place even then? Priests would baptize in the temple with holy water. If there was someone that was a non-Jew, that's a Gentile, and they wanted to convert to Judaism, they would say, come on in. And, and we will do this baptismal service. And that water will represent a cleansing that takes place in you. Well, here you have John the Baptist eating honey and, and locusts and with leather around him and a, and a hair all over him. And now he's baptizing people. 
He is not a priest, and he is certainly not using holy water. He's using the River Jordan, and he is not in a temple. Rather, he is out on the countryside. And so they're asking, why is it you are baptizing? And not only that, but he's actually baptizing Jews as well. And he is saying they need to repent. They need to repent of their sins just like the Gentiles do. He says, I am the lowest rank. And then finally, I found this striking this week. I'm not that intelligent. When it came here in verse 29 and following, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Listen to what verse 31 says. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. It says it again in verse 33. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 1, we learn that John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, is cousins with Mary, Jesus' mother. We see them getting together. That means that John the Baptist and Jesus were related to one another. Now, I don't know. The scripture is not clear. How often did they spend time with one another? Were they doing family reunions together? Were they present at one another's bar mitzvah? I I don't know that. But what we can see from this honesty that John the Baptist offers here is that he didn't know that Jesus was the Christ until he was baptized. The Holy Spirit came and descended on him like a dove, and God said, that's him. I mean, that is astounding that John the Baptist would disclose that as well. So as we look at this messenger, we see one that say, I'm a nobody. I, I really have nothing to say but the word. I'm of the lowest rank, and I'm not... I'm not that intelligent. I didn't even know this until God made it very clear to me. I think if John the Baptist had a a vision statement for his life, it might be John 3, verse 30, when he said, He must increase, but I must what? Decrease. That's right. There's a great story that I read in the commentary this week. It says that one evening, the great conductor, Arturo Toscanini, conducted Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It was a brilliant performance, and at the end of which the audience went absolutely wild. They clapped, whistled, and stamped their feet, absolutely caught up in the greatness of that performance. As the conductor stood there, he bowed and bowed and bowed, and then acknowledged his orchestra. When the ovation finally began to subside, the conductor turned and looked intently at his musicians. He was almost out of control as he whispered, Gentlemen, gentlemen, the orchestra leaned forward to listen. In a fiercely whispered voice, the conductor said, Gentlemen, I am nothing. That was an extraordinary admission of this this, uh, conductor with an enormous ego. He added, Gentlemen, you are nothing. They had heard the same message before the rehearsal, but Beethoven, said Descani, in a tone of adoration, is everything. Everything, everything, 
And this is the attitude that we need to have towards ourselves and towards the Lord Jesus. I am nothing, you are nothing, but he is everything. And this is the messenger. Now let us consider real briefly the message. You see it there in verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This morning, you may have heard that for over a hundred times. I think there's value in us just slowing down our lives a bit, just to pause and reflect on those simple words. I'm learning that the meditating is a method of transferring the truth of God's word from the pages to one's life. So let's consider this little sermon that is known for one word at a time. The first word is the word behold. What does the word behold mean but to take notice, to to clear away distraction, and to focus one's attention? So he says, behold, as if to say, hey, stop what you're doing and listen to what I'm about to say. It's the same sentiment that I think we get on a Thanksgiving when there's all the family that has gathered together and this young lady comes into the room with her, the, the, the young boy that she has been dating or um, uh, courting for, or for several months or maybe a year. And as she walks into the room, you can't help but notice a glow that's coming from her ring finger that announces that they are engaged. And there is a beholding. Everyone pauses. What? Really? And they're captivated by the beauty of the diamond and the significance of it on her ring finger. I think maybe we caught a glimpse of that yesterday afternoon at at my eighth grade son's Elijah's uh, football game. As we were there on the east side, the seventh grade uh, game had just finished, and there's only one word to describe after the seventh grade team comes off the field and the eighth grade comes on the field. It's the word chaos. I mean, it's just... People come in and go on. Parents, are you done here? Can I sit here? Can I put my lawn chair here? And the referees and the score operators and the, the yard markers. It's just, it's just chaos. And all of a sudden, I look out, and I see Elijah's team on the 50-yard on line. And the other side of the 50-yard line is the Manitowoc team. And all of a sudden, things get quiet as everyone is, is, is looking at a flag as the national anthem is being played. And there was a a beholding hush because those of us who were there thought of 20 years ago what was taking place that day. And there was a beholding. Hey, this is really important. We We need to focus right now on this moment. And that's what John the Baptist is saying. Behold. Behold. And then the next word is the. Behold, the Lamb of God. Let's focus for a moment on this word, the. It's not a lamb. It's a significant lamb. In a Jew's life, lambs were killed twice a day. And in the morning and in the evening, they were killed there at the temple as a sacrifice for their sins. Now what we're going to find out in the coming weeks is that John chapter 2's context is the Passover festival. We're just a matter of days from the Passover. We're not very far from Jerusalem. So when John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, people knew all about lambs because lambs are about ready to be offered at the Passover festival. 
One estimated that there'd be a hundred thousand of these lambs being sacrificed at that time. You know, there are times where we arrive here on a Sunday morning, a game day, and, and we come in and, and if the wind's blowing just right, you can smell brats being on the grill, right? Well, imagine the fragrance of, of lamb. Lamb being sacrificed. 100,000 of these. And this was what was going on around this time. So when John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb. He's referring to the Passover Lamb that, that you remember as the Israelites were under the bondage of Egypt. And on the 10th plague, what, what God had prescribed was that they would take a lamb and they would take the blood from that lamb and they would spread it over a doorpost. And when the angel of death came, if he saw the blood applied to the doorpost, he would pass over and they would not experience the wrath of God. And so what we're seeing here is that Jesus is the lamb. There was the lamb that was offered on a daily basis. There was the Passover lamb. And there could be some on special occasions. If a family said, we really need to ask forgiveness for the sins, let's offer a lamb for that as well. 700 years prior to this account in John chapter 1, Isaiah the prophet spoke of a lamb that would be led to the slaughter. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, summarizes it when he says, For you know that it was not with the perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. We see this theme of the Lamb from the opening pages, from the early books of the Bible, and it carries through all the way to the last book of the Bible in Revelation. Let me just have you look with me for a moment at Revelation in a few different passages. Keep your finger here in John 1, and then look with me at Revelation chapter 5. If you were reading the Bible through as a family, as a church family, as we are, it wasn't all that long ago, and we read Revelation. And you might remember in Revelation chapter 5, there's this scroll, and, and the and there's a sorrow that no one is worthy to open the scroll to read it. Look with me at a Revelation 5, verse 5. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, and with seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Can you turn with me another place in in Revelation chapter 12? And in Revelation 12, there's this dragon that represents the devil. And this dragon is defeated. How is he defeated, you might ask? Look at Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Look at verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And then just one other place, and look with me at Revelation 21. Revelation 21 offers a description of a new heaven and a new earth. And you can read all 27 verses here, but I find it interesting, the last, 27, the last verse, verse 27, who is it that gets to experience this new heaven and earth? It says this, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Friends, you want your name to be written in the Lamb's book of life. That is a book that is for those who have repented of their sins, who has had the Lamb shed his blood on your behalf, and you have received that gift. So, so far we've had, behold, the, now let's consider the third word, lamb. Just three S's here for the word lamb. The first is the word spotless. When we think of a lamb, we think of one that was without defect. They would have never allowed a lamb that was mangled or was dark or dirty. It was one without as Jesus is one without defect. Jesus was one without sin. A second S is the word sacrifice. Christianity is a bloody faith. This is not one of triumphant, charismatic, and driven church leaders. We just read about it in Revelation 12. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb. We are overcome by this blood. In Revelation I'm sorry, Hebrews 10.10 says, By that we all have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So this is our song. There's power in the blood. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Evangel's veins. The third S is the word substitute. God demands perfection. No man can deliver perfection. Consequently, judgment is demanded. Instead of you and I experiencing the judgment of God, his son received it on our behalf. So you have behold, you have the lamb, but it's lamb of God. This wasn't a lamb that was provided by a husband or a dad that said, hey, I'm offering this on behalf of our family. I'm giving it to you, priest. Priest, you offer it up to God. Rather, this lamb is actually presented by God himself. 
You know, imagine there was a, a high-profile murder that took place in Brown County. And, and all the news networks, as well as the Green Bay Press Gazette, followed it. And as the trial took place, it was an open and shut case. The, the murderer, the plaintiff, was declared guilty. And then a second hearing was set for his punishment, where he would be determined how long he would go to jail. And so everyone comes back in for this separate hearing, and it's there where the judge says, it's, it's very clear that you have murdered here. And according to the, the law that's pro- provided for me, you are to receive more than one life sentence. But here's what I'm going to do today. And in walks the judge's only son. And he says, today, I'm going to apply the sentence that you deserve for breaking the law on my son. And so you can go, you you can be forgiven, but he's going to experience the judgment that you deserve. This lamb was given to us by God himself. He, He not only provided the law, but then he provided the payment for that law. We not only see then that, behold, not only the Lamb, not only of God, but you see what it does, who takes away. On Tuesday morning, we have a takeaway day at our home. It's a glorious day. It's the day in which the trash is taken away from our curb. Now, a family of seven, um, we don't have a very big trash can, or at least not big enough. And if for some reason we miss that Tuesday morning, it's tragic, all right? It is. And so we've got a boy that he doesn't forget about it. And so we take all of our trash, all the messy stuff from our lives, and we dump it into that container throughout the week. And on Tuesday morning, what a glorious sound it is to hear that trash truck come up and pick it up slam it down, of course it falls down, and then drive away into a place I never even care where it goes. I really don't, as long as it doesn't come back. Amen? And that's what the Lamb has done for our sins. And I'm here to tell you, you don't have to wait for Tuesday morning. You can have it on Sunday morning. You can have it on Sunday afternoon. You can have it on Sunday evening at any moment. The Lamb has come to take away your sins. Dads, moms, we need to lead the way here in being the, the lead repenters. When, when we sin, to be able to land on this promise and saying, but the Lamb of God has taken away this sin. He has removed it as far as the east is from the west. If you lead a Bible study in our church or any other church for that matter, the people need to see that you are a lead repenter as well that the passage that you are teaching, you can't possibly obey entirely. You need the grace of God that we have been singing about today. I'm just telling you, this week as I was working through this passage, what refreshment came to me when I just meditated on this, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, takes away my sin. And I could go back and say, God, you're going to have to take this away because I failed in that. And then to conclude here, who takes away, what does he take away? The sin of the world. What great news we have 
what great news was presented to us from John the Baptist. He takes away not just your sin, loved ones, not just the sins of your family, not just the sins of the Highland Crest family, but the Lamb has taken away the sins of who? Of the world. And do you believe that this morning, church family? Do you believe that the Lamb shed His blood for everyone's sin? If, if they would repent and place their faith, they too could have their sins wiped away? Do you believe that? If so, how many of you have a passport? I mean, that's what it says. The sins of the world. You know, as a church, what we want to do is we want to emphasize humility, but we also, we also want to see the gospel be taken to the world, right? And as, a, as our local church, we have Senegal, in which we want to reach this island of Neomoon Island. Uh, Moses, our missionary, was there just this past week, and, and there is an openness there to, to receive this gospel. That on that island, they know about sacrifice, because they offer up pagan sacrifices often. There's a church there, the most prominent church in Green Bay as well, that knows about sacrifice. Every time they take the Lord's Supper, they think that Jesus is going on the cross for them again. So one of the things that we focus on when we share the gospel there is that the sacrifice has been offered once and for all. Jesus has done it. You don't need another sacrifice. Jesus has done it on their behalf. There's a messenger, and there is the message. Here's an application for you. Meditating is a method of transferring the truth of God's Word from the pages of Scripture to one's life. Loved ones, as a church, we want to be a church that is biblically saturated. We want to be memorizing the Scripture. We want to be reading the Scripture. But we also want to be meditating on the Scripture. Here's some homework for you this week or this day. Take this sermon, this one-sentence sermon. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and, and carve out some time to behold. Carve out some time to be quiet. And maybe the kids are down for bed or, or maybe they're off into the room and you can just have about an hour and you can just meditate. I think there's 13 words there on every one of those words and just write down five different insights that God gives to you from that. You might not have a journal. You know what I use? I use my phone. I might just text myself five different things that as I meditate on that, that one sentence, this is what God is saying to me through his word. I want to give that to you. Now, as a church family, you, you, you've been hearing about small groups forming. Um, most of the small groups are going to start next week with the exception of one that's going to begin this Wednesday at six o'clock here in this room. And in a way, to take this Sunday sermon and begin to apply it into our life, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to discuss chapter 1, verses 19 through verse 34. And one of the things we're going to do is say, let's see those five, five things that, that you wrote down as you meditated on that sermon. And let's discuss what we heard. And let's apply it. How are you applying this in your life since Sunday morning? So you come at 6 o'clock, or you're going to be hearing in a moment about some other small groups. That's what they're going to be doing as well when they begin next Sunday or next week. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we have heard about this messenger. We've seen a man that, by all accounts, 
seems pretty ordinary. He'd say, I'm, I'm nobody. I, I really don't have a lot to say. The only thing I say is what comes from the Word. I'm not a high-ranking person, and I'm not very intelligent. I only do what, what I believe the Lord has put on my heart. I pray that that would bring great encouragement to us. May we be like John the Baptist that would declare, may I decrease and may Jesus increase in my life. Father, I thank you for this simple message, a message that I think summarizes all 66 books of the Bible. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, Father, may we rejoice in this truth. And if there are those here this morning that have yet to have the Lamb take away their sin, I pray that you would help them to turn from their sin, to repent and place their faith in Jesus. And then for the rest of us, may we behold this wonderful Lamb. May we rejoice at how He has taken our sin away. And may we be a part of that message just to tell others around our world that their sins can be forgiven through this spotless lamb who was a substitute for them. In Jesus' name, amen.